Thank you for downloading this podcast from Pardes, North America. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi Michael Hatton on Parashat Tetzaveh. Have you thought about studying with Pardes during the summer? The 2022 Summer Pardes Learning Seminar just might be the right thing for you. Five days of incredible learning with your favorite Pardes faculty in Jerusalem. For more details, please visit pardes.org.il forward slash seminar. And now, here is Rabbi Michael Hatton. Parshat Terumah introduced the Mishka narratives and the detailed description of the tabernacle and its vessels. The Torah was very deliberate and precise in its directives concerning the building and its contents, and everything was introduced in hierarchical fashion. Therefore, the construction of the Ark, the Mishkan's most precious object, was spelled out first. This was followed by a description of the Shulchan and the Menorah, the table of the showbread and the candelabrum, both of which were placed outside of the Holy of Holies, just beyond the dividing curtain. Afterwards, the Torah went on to describe the curtains and the boards of the Mishkan. These were the building envelope to effectively protect and shield the precious vessels outlined above. And then the bronze altar was introduced, which sat in the exterior courtyard and upon which the animal sacrifices were to be presented. But what was prominently lacking from last week's Parsha entirely was any reference to the golden altar of incense, a crucial cultic object that occupied a central position in both physical space as well as ceremony. The Mizbah of the golden altar was to be located within the Kodesh, the holy area, just beyond the dividing curtain and exactly opposite the Aron, the Ark of the Testimony. The table and the menorah were to flank it, highlighting its special significance in the scheme of things. And ritually, the golden altar received a twice-daily offering of pure incense as the first rays of light appeared in the east and again later in the day as the fiery orb of the sun began its descent in the west. And the golden altar was to figure most prominently in the solemn service of Yom Kippur, when the high priest would effect atonement for the people of Israel by placing the sacrificial blood upon its horns. It is very curious, then, that the passage that describes the golden altar, even as it employs syntax and vocabulary that clearly link it to the other vessels, is not introduced until the very end of our parsha, Parshat Tetzaveh. You shall fashion an altar for the offering of incense, and you shall make it out of acacia wood. You shall gild it with pure gold, its top and its sides around, as well as its horns. You shall make staves out of acacia wood. You shall cover them with gold. You shall place the altar before the dividing curtain that is before the Ark of the Testimony, etc. The Sforno, a 15th century Italian commentary, had daringly suggested that the table and the menorah were analogues to the household furnishings associated with nobility. 
Aristocrats typically had a table and a lampstand, a bed and a chair in their chambers, and so too the house of God. Sephorno drew a precedent from the Shunammite woman and, woman and her husband mentioned in the book of Kings, the second book, chapter 4, verse 10. The Shunammite woman had prepared a chamber for the prophet Elisha, and she had furnished it with those very four objects. We shall place it within it a couch, a table, a chair, and a lamp. But God, of course, has no use for furniture. The concrete and coarse pagan deities may have physically dwelt in their temples and were imagined by their devotees to actually consume and be sustained by the food offerings placed before them. But not so the invisible, incorporeal, and absolute God of Israel. And therefore, Sephorno suggests the table was an object upon which were perpetually displayed the twelve loaves of bread, as mentioned in Vayikra chapter 24, verses 5 to 9, to suggest God's constant provision of physical sustenance and nourishment to the people of Israel, the twelve tribes. Much as an earthly monarch would attend to the welfare of his people and defend their interests from harm. The menorah, on the other hand, the delicate golden branches illuminated by the light of an ethereal fire, alluded to the various areas of human knowledge while ascribing God as their source. His wisdom alone could provide enlightenment. These two objects, then, according to the Sephorno, the table and the menorah, they framed the Ark of the Testimony that alone occupied the Holy of Holies just beyond the dividing curtain. Sephorno explained that the Ark was the embodiment of God's throne, its angelic figures hovering protectively over the precious contents of the two tablets that spelled out in, in a in a remarkable economy of words, the terms and the conditions of the divine human relationship. God's presence among the people of Israel, the angelic seat upon which he was symbolically enthroned, was a direct function of their loyalty to the Torah, their willingness and desire to actively seek out his presence. Taken together, therefore, these three precious objects, the Ark of the Testimony, the table, and the menorah provided a concise summary of God's special bond with the people of Israel. His Torah guided them, his providence sustained them, and his wisdom and spirit enlightened them. For Sephorno, then, the table and the menorah had their direct parallels in the houses of the nobles. We might surmise that, according to Sephorno, that was true of the bed or the couch as well, although he did not explicitly draw a link between that and the Mishkan, such as the implication. It is, in fact, the Ark which can be associated with the bed. After all, the Ark of the Covenant occupied the most private space of all the Holy of Holies, 
Upon its lid were found two golden figures, the Kiruvim, which hovered protectively above it. Some of the Talmudic rabbis claimed that these Kiruvim, described in our text as facing each other, but elsewhere as facing the house, in Chronicles 2, chapter 3, verse 13, would adjust their gaze in accordance with the state of the God-Israel relationship. When Israel fulfilled the will of God, the Kiruvim would face each other. When they strayed, the Kiruvim would turn away. Talmud Bavli Baba Batra 99a. It is Rashi who completes the bold metaphor in his commentary to the Talmudic passage. He explains when Israel did the will of God, the Kiruvim would turn their faces towards each other after the manner of a man and a woman who were in love, symbolic of the love that God had for the people of Israel. Thus were the Kiruvim initially fashioned face to face that God's presence should be felt among the people of Israel so that they might fulfill his will. And when they did not, then the Kruvim would miraculously avert their gaze and each one face the wall. While we recognize the limitations of anthropomorphic readings, we may yet profit from considering this most intrepid of allegories. The arc is symbolic not only of God's throne and presence in the material world, but of his desire to bestow his goodness, his Torah, on the people of Israel. When Israel fulfills his will and keeps his commands, then intense relationship with God, a relationship of intimates, a genuine love, are possible. When they stray from him, then they experience the pain of separation and the travail of distance. He turns away in reaction to their own infidelity. Sforno must therefore be intimating that the analog to the couch or the bed of the noble's private chamber is none other than the Ark of the Testimony in the Mishkan. Both of these objects bespeak the possibility and the potential for expressing the most privileged, private, and heartfelt of human longings. The intense love for another as the truest metaphor for the burning love of God. But what about the golden altar that still remains absent inexplicably from the account of the most precious vessels? Does it also have a parallel? An object in the chamber of Elisha, a correspondence that Sephorno left unstated? Perhaps we should consider the significance of this altar in the daily temple ritual. In contrast to the large altar of bronze found in the outer courtyard and upon which the sacrifices, primarily animal sacrifices, were burnt, the small and precious golden altar only received the incense. This fragrant combination of spices was daily offered on a bed of burning hot coals, especially prepared for the purpose. The holy space would then fill with the ascending smoke, and the priest would bow and exit. The Torah makes no attempt to explain the significance of the incense offering, but already in the book of Tehillim, the book of Psalms, 
a plausible interpretation was advanced. David poetically exclaims in Psalm 141, verses 1 to 2, God, I call out to you. Hurry to save me. Listen to my voice when I cry out to you. May my prayer find favor before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. We might suggest then that the service of the incense was meant to symbolize the offering of prayers to God by the people of Israel. Unlike the service of the tangible animal sacrifice, which had at its core the idea of substitution and submission, the incense offering consisted solely of fragrant, fragrant smoke ascending from the fire ephemeral and elusive. What more fitting symbol could there be for the poignant prayer of the human heart uttered silently but sincerely, borne aloft to God daily on measured breaths, as ethereal as a rising wisp of smoke? On the other hand, the golden altar in the ritual of the Day of Atonement once again accompanied by a special incense offering, may also be animated by a similar notion. The true repentance associated with Yom Kippur, the transformative teshuva that alone restores us to God's presence, is of course a service of the heart. If we are insincere or insensitive, the ritual is of little worth. But if our teshuva is genuine, if our prayers are real, then God is attentive to our cries and close to our spirit. And the incense, the ascending fragrant smoke of Yom Kippur may therefore be symbolic of our intense desire to reach him through prayer. We now understand why the golden altar occupies such an honored position in the space of the holy. As the symbol of prayer ascending, it is placed exactly opposite the Ark of the Testimony, separated from it only by the thin partition of the dividing curtain. On either side, the table and the menorah guard the golden altar. But these objects speak worlds about God's involvement in our lives, even as the golden altar speaks for us. We stand before God and pour out our prayers before him, aware of his providence and enlightenment, transfixed by the awesome experience of his presence. The throne or the couch that suggests, suggestively beckons beyond the curtain, an invitation to the spiritual intimacy for which we long. But why then is the golden menorah, why, excuse me, why then is the golden altar omitted from the account of last week's Parsha? Why is it only appended to the conclusion of these narratives in Parshat Tetzaveh like some sort of afterthought? In fact, the deliberate placement of the golden altar at the end of our Parsha this week is a, is a direct function of its unique status. The other vessels in the holy space, the table and the menorah, describe God's ongoing intervention in our lives. 
He provides for our daily needs. He defends us from physical harm. He inspires us with wisdom and ignites the flame of spirituality that gives meaning to our lives. He guides us with his commands. The Mishkan is in fact his house. After the manner of Sforno's interpretation, its various vessels and ceremonies highlight his eternal presence in Israel. But the Torah suggests that the engine that drives and animates the hollowed spaces of the tabernacle, the rituals that will bring life to the holy place and charge it with meaning are those that are brought to it by the broken human heart. If we cannot cry out to God, then no ceremony, no matter how august or noble, can save us from despair and oblivion. It is the golden altar, the service of the incense, that embodies our most profound and intense, unutterable words. It is the golden altar that is left until the end. To emphasize in the most extraordinary way that the Mishkan remains incomplete and unfinished until its solemn space is restored by the prayer that truly constitutes its attended purpose. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you again for downloading this podcast, a production of Pardes North America. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to follow us on Spotify for the latest episode of Pardes from Jerusalem or by visiting elmod.pardes.org. Tune in next week as Yiska Smith teaches on Parashat Kitisa. Thanks for listening.